0: As I discuss uh, historical reliability or the historical evidence um, for Christianity, there's three main things I want to touch on. One is that the New Testament is reliable. The New Testament is historically reliable. Two, I want to provide evidence for Christ's resurrection from the dead. And three, Uh, I want to provide evidence for Christ's deity. Now, by the way, once you get Christ's deity and you've already proven New Testament reliability, then if Jesus is God and He said that the Old Testament is God's Word and the Scriptures cannot be broken, and then if He promised that heaven and earth would pass away but His words would not pass away and that the Holy Spirit would guide the apostles into all the truth and remind them what Jesus said, then what we're seeing is that jesus is not only believed the old testament was god's word but he promised the new testament that his words would not pass away they'd be delivered to us in written form just like the old testament and um, uh... so uh... uh... and we're basically picking up where we left off we provided evidence for god's existence now the next question comes up okay so a personal god exists Uh, Did he write a book? And uh, now, when we say the New Testament is historically reliable, we're not arguing that it's God's word. But like I say, once you prove the deity of Christ, then uh, you know there's. I uh, I was uh, giving a lecture to the Campus Crusade for Christ uh, uh, at University of Washington. uh, What was that? Thursday? A couple days ago, Thursday. Uh, to some of their staffers and some of their student leaders. And there was a girl from Taiwan there, and I knew she, she was asking questions about Lao Tzu, who was the founder of Taoism. So I knew, you know, hey, she, this is probably not a believer and stuff like that. So after I got done the discussion, the talk, um, my wife and I had the opportunity to witness to her. And uh, she has a hard time accepting that the Bible is without her. And basically, what I told her was that there are a person can be a Christian uh, and still believe the Bible has errors. Now, that's what I call a very, very inconsistent Christian. But you'd be shocked at some of the people who fell in that category. Even C.S. Lewis believed that the Old Testament was a collection of myths, but the New Testament, um, uh, the Gospel, is actually the myth that came came true. So, uh, and usually you don't find that in C.S. Lewis's writings unless you read the footnotes as well. He also believed evolution devil- <coughs> was a biological fact. Um, but whatever the case, the point I was making with the, to this girl was that you need to trust in Jesus alone, the true Jesus of the Bible, trust in him alone for salvation. If you do that, he won't cast you away. He'll save you. And once you get saved... Then you can start talking to some of the Campus Crusade and Christ leaders about the Bible, and you know, but basically, if you worship Jesus as your God and Savior, uh, you tend to, to take his uh, opinion, hold his opinion on in much higher regard than if you're not one of his. Um, but whatever the case, this is the, the route that I go. But after Christ's deity, you can then prove the Bible is God's word and without error and once you've proven that then whatever it teach, the Bible teaches is true and uh, uh, by the way that's the way I argue got about a chapter on each of these topics in No Other Gods A Defense of Biblical Christianity um, ok the reliability of the New Testament uh, you, you'll hear time and time again even history professors will sometimes do this will say uh, you know, you quote John 3.16 or John 14.6 to them and, and they'll say, yeah, well, we don't know that Jesus really said that. And we'll say, well, what are, you, what are you talking about? John was an eyewitness and he recorded this. And we will say, no, look, we don't know that, that John really wrote that and we don't even know that Jesus really said that. This is stuff that probably, you know, the Christian church threw this stuff in years later and uh, just legends or whatever. Uh, five minutes later, that history professor will quote from Plato. What he's doing there is he's using a double standard uh, to the worst degree. Um, basically when you when you look at the manuscript evidence for ancient documents, okay there's three main tests test. test. Uh, one would be the number of copies okay the number of copies. No, just have a bit. What's that? We just had in the class before, so. Oh, oh, and you dealt with New Testament reliability? We didn't yeah, have that. that. Yeah, we'll that. that part there. Just real quick. Okay. Okay, good, because, you know, I've got so much to go over. If I can skip over... Yeah, we have. If to. I can skip over something... Yeah, yeah, and then when I, what I use is Resilient. The It's in second place, and Plato's writings are very weak. You know, seven copies 12, span of 1,200 years. Um. Good, good. Is it all right then if I just skip skip over that? Just basically, all I'm arguing for there is from the manuscript evidence, okay? From the manuscript evidence, the New Testament is by far the most historically reliable um, out of all ancient literature. Homer's Iliad comes in second place, but you know the difference there is between probably at this point well over 26,000 copies of the New Testament, about 5,000 in the Greek, the original Greek. Uh, but some of the other translations in a different languages actually predate some of the uh, Greek manuscripts that we have. Uh, Homer's Iliad only has, uh, I believe, 643 copies. Uh, but whatever the case, the manuscript evidence uh, in those three tests Uh, the number of copies also the wide distribution of them throughout the globe Um, the gap between the earliest copy that we have and when the originals were supposedly written is smaller for the New Testament than for other ancient writings Um, and then the accuracy of the copies, the agreement, much higher for the New Testament than any other other, uh, writing. So the New Testament by far is the most reliable ancient writing uh, based upon manuscript evidence that's number one. What we have is a double standard. What we have are people who will say, look, we don't have the original manuscripts from the New Testament, so who knows what it said? And then they'll quote from Plato, even though there's a gap of twelve hundred years and only seven seven copies, and with a gap that long and only seven copies, who knows what Plato really wrote? But these guys are saying, hey, you know, that's really not that bad for ancient manuscripts. Well, if that's not that bad then pardon the expression, but the New Testament manuscripts are walking on water. Okay, so uh, let's use one standard for the. the, the what's the difference? The difference is if Plato's if Plato really wrote what he wrote, then even if you accept his writings, you don't have to bow before him. With the New Testament, if the New Testament is a historically reliable uh it's going to make some pretty big demands on your life. You, you are no longer the king of your life. Um, okay, uh, even beyond that, there's more evidence. The Apostolic Fathers were the pupils of the Apostles. By the way, you can get all the writings of the Apostolic Fathers in one book. In fact, you can get it uh, with the Greek text and then with the English translation of it or you can just get the English translation and save a little money um, but they were the pupils of the apostles who led the early church. Okay, guys like Clement of Rome who wrote in 95 A.D. Paul might even mention him in the uh, scriptures. I believe it's the Book of Romans where he mentions Clement. Uh, he's not to be mistaken with Clement of Alexandria who came much later. But Clement of Rome wrote about 95 A.D. Ignatius wrote from 110 to 115 A.D. Ignatius, is, Clement of Rome, by the way, provides evidence for Christ's He argues that Christ did literally rise from the dead in the flesh. He did bodily rise from the dead. Uh, Clement also calls uh, uh, Jesus the the Lord. Uh, Ignatius wrote between 110 and 115 AD, he was en route to get martyred when he was writing all his letters. He wrote a whole bunch of them right before he died. And over and over again he refers uh, to Jesus as his God and Savior over and over again I mean this guy didn't pull any punches it was just his proclaiming of Christ's deity was blatant I mean you find that almost every page of his writings Polycarp lived from 70 AD to about 156 AD he was a pupil of the Apostle John and uh, uh, basically right up until 156 AD if somebody said something about Jesus that wasn't true People would go to Polycarp and ask him, "Hey, what's the scoop here?" And Polycarp would refute it if it was not what the original apostles taught. Uh, so basically, if legends if if legends could develop within Christendom, it would probably have to wait till after 156 A.D. to get even get off the ground. And lo and behold, the Gnostic heresies would sound like. Uh, uh, a new age Greek philosophical corruption of true biblical Christianity. Most of those gospels date back to about 170 A.D. So I mean, once you know, and, and keep in mind, Paul's preaching, and there were the Judaizers trying to say you got you have to be saved by Jesus plus the law, and he had to refute those heretics. Then in Colossians, there was kind of a uh, kind of. Gnosticism in embryo form, worship of angels, a blending of uh, legalism and, uh, and Gnostic-type teachings, and he had to refute that stuff for race. So these guys are coming out of the woodwork, but they were so easy to refute when you had eyewitnesses and pupils of eyewitnesses. After that, it gets a little bit harder, and so then you start, it's like a, a snowball going down a hill, it starts getting bigger and bigger once Polycarp, of the Apostolic Fathers, died. But um, um, Papias, uh, oh, by the way, Polycarp calls Jesus God. So, um, you know, he would not have called Jesus God if his, if his teacher, the Apostle John, didn't call Jesus God. Of course, Apostle John, he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. He rested his head on, on Jesus' shoulder. He knew Jesus better than anybody. Uh, Papias lived from uh, 60 A.D. to about 140 A.D. Uh, it's really, it almost sounds like he denies sola scripturae, the, 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 the doctrine that the Bible is the ultimate authority for Christians, Christian beliefs and Christian behavior. It almost sounds like he denies it because he says, look, for me, I didn't sell disputes by going to the writings. Okay, so it sounds like he's denying the authority of Scripture. What he said, though, was, I didn't... I didn't settle debates, disputes by going to the writings. I went and talked to the authors. So basically what he was saying, he was admitting that the, the Bible was the ultimate authority, but he's saying, why sit down and spend all this time studying it to try to figure out what, what John was really trying to get at here? Why not just go and talk to John? And uh, by the way, he finds some interesting things. Eusebius was a church historian. He wrote the first history of Christianity, you know, and he was writing like about 350 A.D. and he was explaining why Papias wasn't a great thinker because he was dumb enough to really think that Jesus was going to literally return and reign on earth for a thousand years and we were really going to have physical resurrection bodies and all the stuff like that well he just got done quoting Polycarp saying anytime I had a dispute there was a dispute I walked right up to the authors So Eusebius was all caught up in platonic philosophy where there is no place for a physical resurrection. Um, Who am I going to believe? Him or Papias who settled his disputes by talking to the biblical authors himself? Um, Basically what I'm getting at is the uh, don't let anybody (coughs) don't let anybody uh, make you feel bad uh, because you believe that Jesus is going to literally reign on earth. That was the historic position of the Christian church. It was only with the Alexandrian school, Clement Alexandrian, Origen, and uh, they, these were guys steeped in Platonic philosophy where there was no, no purpose, no, no purpose, further purpose, for uh, uh, human bodies. And so they had no, no place for uh, Christ reigning on earth. And, uh, but that basically was the historic position of the church that Christ will literally reign on earth. And the uh, problem is, once Augustine rejected that, he changed the course of church history until the 1830s when dispensationalism got a start. But the uh, Christ reign on earth, premillennialism, is actually a return to the historic uh, position of the church. Uh, Papias also tells us that uh, Mark's gospel was actually Peter's gospel he got it from Peter and that after they, when they re, they were both in Rome and after Peter departed Mark wrote down the gospel that Peter gave him it was originally known as the gospel of Peter but eventually John Mark got such a big name in the church that people started to call it the gospel of Mark knowing that he got it from Peter now the interesting thing is liberal scholars because of that because Papias wrote that way back they say, well, you know what, um, Peter's departure, that's talking about his death. Peter died in 67 AD, therefore Mark wrote his gospel after 67 AD. Well, Carsten P. needy P. is a, a scholar that deals, he studies nothing but fragments, ancient fragments. Um, he argues that uh, departure is nowhere used in ancient Greek literature to refer to somebody's death unless the context demands it. And in in Papias' usage of it, all that is implied is that Mark and Peter were in Rome. Peter left Rome. Mark decided, well, since Peter's not here, let me write down the gospel that he gave me. But when did Peter leave Rome? About 44 AD. So it pushes forward. And that's real important because uh, Carson P. Thede, um, we used to think that the oldest New Testament manuscript in fact most scholars still think it is that existing today is John Ryland's fragment of John chapter 18 Jesus before Pilate and it dates between 125 and 135 AD which is only 25 to 35 years after John wrote his gospel Okay, thing is Karsten P. Thede has now shown that in uh, Cave 7 of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, there are fragments smaller than the size of a postage stamp uh, of Greek writings. And he agrees, don't ask me how, but he agrees with a Spanish scholar named O'Callaghan. Obviously, obviously, there's obviously there's some Irish blood there somewhere, but but uh, O'Callaghan had said, you know, years ago, he identified one of the fragments as a portion of Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter six. He also identified one of the fragments from First Timothy chapter three, and you know, the list goes on and on. Carson Thede is arguing that uh, the reason why this has been rejected okay uh the, the romans uh destroyed rome They uh, destroyed rome they, they did that too but the romans uh uh devastated jerusalem about 70 a.d but before they got before they accomplished that in 68 a.d was when they demolished uh the dead sea area so basically, you can't date any of the, any of the Dead Sea Scrolls later than 68 A.D. And so uh, this March 6, oh, Callahan and, and Altheide dated 50 to 68 A.D., which means it, it could have very well been a copy of an original. You know. So uh, now the thing is, these guys want the original written after this. So. The, the New Testament critics are arguing against it, but The is, is saying, look, we now have computer technology. Our computers tell us, it's written on both sides, a fragment of Mark 6. Uh, our computers tell us that, it, that the combination of Greek letters shows up nowhere else in all of ancient Greek literature except for Mark's Gospel, Chapter 6. And, and then The reminds us it's his job to deal with empirical evidence, just small fragments. He's not like the New Testament critics who speculate wild theories about like some Q document which contains the real historical things, teachings about Jesus that our Gospels are supposedly based on. No one has ever seen the Q document. It doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't exist. The Q document is just made up uh, because people don't, if we accept the New Testament accounts the way they are, and we should because they're historically reliable, then you have to bow before Jesus. He's God and Savior. Uh, so they invent a document that supposedly had the core teachings about Jesus that were the, the G, true Jesus of history, but he looks nothing like the, the true Jesus of uh, the, the Jesus of faith, the Jesus that we believe in today. What has been proven over and over again is whenever you you take the supernatural aspects away from the Jesus of the Bible, what you end up with is no Jesus at all. So, I mean, how could Jesus have such a big impact in the first century when all these, you know, even legends have to be based on some kind of fact? Well, if we assume what's in the New Testament is legend, you take all the supernatural aspects out. There's there's nothing left. I mean, even even when when all he was doing was teaching, in the midst of his teaching, one of the the core of his teaching was the kingdom of God is here because I, the King, God Himself, has come to visit this planet. I mean, uh, so I mean, you could try to take uh, the supernatural aspects out of Jesus away from Jesus, but once you do, it's no longer Jesus, and uh, and so what Carson Beat Media is saying is these guys are all caught up in their speculation. Their speculation is too important to them uh, to accept uh, historical facts. And uh, the just published two books on the subject uh, uh, recently. The name uh, sk- skips my mind at this point. Uh, but uh, whatever the fact... Uh, what was his name? Karsten, it's C. Karsten uh, P. Thede. P is the middle initial. And the is T-H-I-E-D-E. Um, anyway, the, the thing that's important about the Apostolic Fathers is they quoted from the New Testament or paraphrased the New Testament. They taught that the Christ deity, that Jesus is God. They taught that he died a sacrificial death for us and for our sins. Uh, They taught that he bodily rose from the dead and they taught that salvation comes only through him. In short, they taught everything that non-believing scholars today tell us uh, is legend. All the things that are supposedly were a bunch of legends that developed hundreds of years later, the pupils of the apostles were already teaching it. Okay, I mean, you have an unbroken chain. Not only have the the strong manuscript evidence for the New Testament, you have an unbroken chain from the uh, apostles, the New Testament that we have today, to the apostolic fathers, to their pupils, the the next leaders in the early church, the leaders after them, the leaders after them. All this talk about how you know some some. Church council in 300 or 400 AD changed Christianity? No. We can trace it all the way back to the apostles themselves. In fact, I'll be un- honest. Uh, when we get to the ancient creeds, we'll see that we can actually trace it back uh, to even before the New Testament was even written. There were ancient creeds already teaching the deity of Christ and his resurrection. And uh, that's really weird, too, because foreign criticism is an attempt to find the oral, the spoken traditions that predate the New Testament that the New Testament came from. And so we Christians got real scared when the liberal critics started looking for these things. Well, it blew up in their faces because now we found a bunch of oral traditions that do predate the New Testament. And guess what? They still teach that Jesus is God. And he rose from the dead and He's Savior. So, uh, um... Uh, ancient secular writings that confirm the message of the New Testament. Uh, I talk about these in that, in that, uh, pink book, No Other Gods. Um, probably the best book written on the subject is, uh, my old professor from Liberty University, Gary Habermas. Um, he, his book is called The Verdict of History. And, uh, you wouldn't know that if you asked him, you wouldn't know that from his Detroit accent. I remember I was talking to him on the phone once and, uh, and uh, I said, yeah, I got your, I got your book. I just bought your book the other day. And he said, you said, what, the stroke of Jesus? And I thought, the stroke of Jesus? I said, oh, no, Dr. Habermas went nuts after I left Liberty and stuff. He said, man, what happened? And I said, uh, no, uh, no, it sounds like a real winner. They'll have to pick that up. He said, well, what did you get? I said, um, I got uh, the historical... Je- the, yeah, yeah so that's right, the, the historical Jesus is the name of the book. So I said, I got the the historical Jesus. He said, yeah, that's what I said, the stroke of Jesus. <laughs> so uh, with his heavy Detroit, Detroit accent, believe me, it's the historical Jesus, but he doesn't pronounce it that way, but whatever the case... Uh, um, uh, ancient secular writings, these were non-christian writers, historians, writers they didn't believe that Jesus is God that he had risen from the dead and uh, that he's uh, the only savior for mankind they didn't believe that but they confirmed to us that is exactly what the first generation Christians believed Dallas, in 52 AD he's still trying to explain uh, away the darkness when Christ was crucified why it got dark in the middle of the day Okay, 20 years later Still trying to explain away supernatural aspects of Christ's life. Cornelius Tacitus was a Roman historian writing in 115 A.D. He affirmed the historical existence of Christ and and his crucifixion at the time of Pontius Pilate, but he also refers to Christians and their beliefs spreading throughout the Roman Empire despite intense persecution. That's important. So you know, I mean. First-generation Christians were not guys that believed in fairy tales. They were guys who were so sincere about their beliefs that they were be, they were willing to die for those beliefs. They refused uh, to deny those beliefs. Suetonius wrote in 117 A.D. Uh, 117 and one, between 117 and 138 A.D., Roman historian made reference to Christ and Christians. Um, Pliny the Younger. Uh, 112 A.D. A Roman governor refers to Christians meeting on one fixed day of the week. That's well, was Sunday. One fixed day of the week and singing hymns to Christ and worshiping him as God. See the, the deification of Buddha. Like most legends, that took several centuries after Buddha was dead before some of his followers believed were promoting the idea that he claimed to be God. Legends take centuries to develop. Okay. Here in 112 A.D., uh, while the pupils of the apostles are still alive, the apostle John's only been dead for about 12 years, Pliny the Younger says, yeah, it's real common for Christians to gather on a fixed day of the week and to sing hymns to Christ and and to worship Him as God. Okay. Um, Emperor Trajan was right in 112 A.D. He required Christians to deny Christ by worshiping the Roman gods in order to gain their freedom. In other words... These these people, were these early Christians were sincere enough to die for their beliefs because all they had to do was deny Christ, bow down before the Roman gods, and they would be set free. Instead, they chose to be torn to pieces by wild animals, to be crucified, to be stoned to death. Why? Because they were sincere about their beliefs, and one of those beliefs was that the Lord Jesus, the one in whom they worshipped, uh, had conquered death and would have no problem raising them from the dead would have no problem guaranteeing them eternal life um, uh, and you know what would give them some of that kind of confidence in Christ I don't know anything other than the uh, resurrection of Christ from the dead um, Emperor Trajan 112 AD said the same thing required Christians to deny Christ by adoring uh... the roman gods if they if they wanted to be set free so you know any one of these people was put to death all he had to do was deny christ and he would have been set free and uh, and they refused to deny christ emperor hadrian 117 uh... to 138 ad uh, was when he wrote and uh... said the same thing uh... Um, the death penalty for christians um, but if they deny christ then then cut them loose set them free Lucian was right in 2nd century A.D., a Greek author. He confirmed that Christians worshipped a man who had been crucified. The thing is, too, is he said they worship a man to this day. It's almost It's almost like he's saying, can you believe it? Those Christians are such a bunch of Neanderthals that they still worship a man to this day. Well, he's implying that, you know, the latest he wrote was about 199 A.D., he's implying that that belief has been going on for several generations uh, if that's the case uh, then forget about any legend idea Okay. Um, and then Josephus was a Jewish historian uh, the Romans hired him to, to write the history of the Jews for them um, he lived from 37 AD to 97 AD um, Let, let me, I'll, I'll read, this is the quote that the uh, leading Josephine scholars put in, in Josephus' writings, and, uh, it's what's that? 103. Good, thanks. Again, I quote that in the in the No Other Gods book on page 103, but Josephus stated this, now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, it could be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him. For he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named after him are not extinct at this day. Now the reason why this is rejected, the manuscript evidence favors it. The reason why it is objected uh, by non-Christian scholars is because Josephus was not a Christian. Why would he say that Jesus was the Christ, that he did rise from the dead, that he did perform miracles, Um, two things need to be said here one is if you read any of Josephus' writings it seems that he liked the most spectacular he would talk to the eyewitnesses or the people who would know best and whatever way they told him the story he would print it as as spectacular as they told him ok it was kind of like he wanted his history to be interesting so number one, that would explain why he he just wrote what the eyewitnesses told him even though he wasn't a believer. But number two, there is a translation of, uh, an Arabic translation of this passage from from Josephus that is shorter, and it says the same stuff, only it, it says that, the, you know, he, he says, you know, his followers claimed that he appeared to them alive again on the third day. His followers claimed that he was the Christ, okay? Now, what my old professor from Liberty University, Dr. Habermas, said is that basically the issue is not the question among scholars is not um, did Josephus ever mention Jesus. The issue is which of these two passages correctly represents what Josephus said about Jesus. It's an either-or, okay, um, and. But Habermas says, just for the sake of argument, let's take the weaker text. He's still here's a guy who lived from 37 A.D. to 97 A.D. Most of the well, while he was a young man, most of the apostles were still alive, um, or at least a teenager. They were still alive. well, they were still alive while he was a teenager. Um, he was a respected guy. He was a Pharisee, Josephus. Um, but if you take even the weaker text he's talking to the eyewitnesses. I mean, this guy died in 97, he's talking to the eyewitnesses, and the eyewitnesses told him that, yeah, we believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. He was put to death on the Pontius Pilate, but on the third day he rose from the dead, appeared alive to us, and that's why we're willing to die for him today. Um, And basically that's all we need to show that the New Testament account is reliable. All the things that the liberal critics want us to throw out Josephus and these other guys are saying, "No, oh, this is what the first generation Christians believed," um, and then of course they were sincere enough to die for those beliefs. Uh, in the ancient creeds in the New Testament—some um, of them are like First Corinthians chapter 15 verses three to eight. First uh, Corinthians 15 three to eight. Paul gives a summary the post-resurrection appearances of Christ okay he, he includes in that summary his own Christ appearing to him on several occasions But it, and then he also talks about over 500 witnesses seeing Christ at one time uh, Jesus appearing to, to Cephas, Peter he uses the Aramaic name of Peter Cephas uh, and to James uh, Philippians chapter 2 5 to 11 is another ancient creed and that one talks about the fact that, that Jesus is God even though he goes on existing as God uh, he didn't cling to his equal privileges uh, 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 as God but decided to veil his glory by becoming a man and, and humbling himself to the point of, of death on a cross uh, well First Corinthians, even liberal critics admit that Paul did write it, and they date it about fifty-five A.D. That, by the way, is too early for legends to gain a wide following. Uh, And then he wrote Philippians about sixty-one A.D. This is not in dispute by liberal critics. Okay, the the thing is though, these ancient creeds or hymns, Paul. He says, I deliver to you that which I also receive. That's rabbinical language. That's the language of the rabbis when one Pharisee passed on a tradition to his pupils, to his disciples. Okay? So he's saying, I'm passing on oral tradition to you. Um, It also reads very choppy in the Greek. You translate it back into the Aramaic and it reads like a poem or a hymn. Okay? And so scholars have looked at this and said, well, what it is, is through the ancient creeds which predate the writing of the New Testament, ancient creeds or hymns which were recited or sung in the early churches. And just as the, the Pharisees, the rabbis passed on their teachings through oral tradition, the apostles were doing the same until they decided to start writing down uh, their gospels. Well, and the reason being is oral traditions can be perverted unless they're put down in written form and then copied uh, accurately. Um, And so basically, uh, many argue that Paul probably got that creed from the Jewish church since they were the ones speaking Aramaic, and he probably got it when he visited uh, James, Peter, and John in 37 AD so now all of a sudden we push these creeds back to about 37 AD how in the world when, you know A. Uh, w. N. Sherwin White was is a, a historian that dealt with ancient uh, Roman uh, history which deals a lot with myths and legends and he, he, he proved conclusively that it takes several centuries to uh, for myths or legends to to gain a wide following how in the world do you get a myth, resurrection myth or legend or a deity myth or legend in less than a decade it doesn't make any sense at all see even liberal critics admit that uh, the the book of of Acts most of those sermons were accurate were really given by Peter and others what were they just days after, what a couple months after the uh, supposed resurrection, these guys are preaching that Christ is risen from the dead, and they keep saying over and over again, and we are eyewitnesses of that. Um, I mean, that, if you wanted to refute the resurrection, the liberal critics wanted to refute the resurrection, they had their chance because all they had to do, all the Jewish religious leaders. And the Romans had to do was produce the rotting corpse of Christ, and it would have crushed Christianity in its embryo form. And that did not occur. How do we know that that didn't occur? Because the Church grew rapidly while preaching a resurrection. You, you could show, you know, people could say, "Well, well, the Muslim faith grew rapidly when it first started." So, did, are they claiming Muhammad rose from the dead? No. All they thought was his teachings were true. No big deal. You know, it's, yeah, his followers were sincere too, but uh, they were mistaken. Um, but it's a lot harder to say that the sincere uh, apostles and their followers were mistaken when it was the resurrection that they were placing their trust. I mean, when Jesus appeared to them, there he is standing before him in Luke twenty-four. These guys still didn't believe. He said, "Look, guys, I have a body of flesh and bone. Uh, if you don't believe me," touch the holes in my hands the holes in my feet my pierced side still don't believe me give me a piece of broiled fish I'll eat it in your presence and then let me tell you um, if the apostles came to me and told me that this guy Jesus and Nazareth rose from the dead but they weren't willing to die for their faith I wouldn't believe them but then if they were willing to die for their faith I'd say yeah those, those guys must be sincere they must have been eyewitnesses but the apostles themselves, what kind of evidence do they want? I mean, he, Thomas was willing to call his his own buddies liars. I'm not going to believe until I see him and put my, my finger in the holes in his hands and his feet. I mean, you talk about being skeptics. They were skeptics, skeptics par excellence until Jesus proved to them not only that he had risen, but he had completely conquered death so that they could trust in him so that no matter what man does to our bodies, uh, it's not going to stop the Lord Jesus uh, from someday resurrecting our bodies, but from right here and now uh, giving us eternal life. Uh, so these ancient creeds are tremendously strong evidence um, for uh, Christ's uh, deity and resurrection. By the way, there's Romans 10.9, 1 Timothy chapter 3. There's lots of these ancient creeds that are found in the New Testament. Um, let's just skip over to Christ's resurrection I'm just going to give you an overview of what this talk would be had I not rambled so much that I, you know, there be some time left but, but basically with the resurrection of Christ we have the resurrection accounts in the New Testament which by the way we have shown the New Testament in the least in, in, in the most spectacular areas the supernatural aspects of Christ's life we found the New Testament to be what historically reliable. So that forms the basis for our discussing the four possibilities of Christ's resurrection, the resurrection accounts. Um, the four possibilities they could be these resurrection accounts could be legends, but the entire lecture that we just gave on New Testament reliability. Shoots that down. So now we're down to three possibilities. Maybe the apostles were liars. Maybe they were deceived. The only other option, maybe they were telling the truth. Well, the resurrection accounts were not legends. We show that in the uh, last lectures. Legends take centuries to form, long after the eyewitnesses are gone. Um, this stuff predates the New Testament itself. Uh, so it wasn't legends well maybe the apostles were lying about the resurrection some have argued that maybe they stole the body and fabricated the resurrection accounts Uh, no these guys were sincere enough to die men do not die for what they know to be a hoax okay they claim they saw Jesus risen from the dead Um, that does not sound like liars okay these guys were sincere they really believed they saw Jesus risen from the dead and by the way point D is where most most scholars who reject the resurrection of Christ point D is the view that they hold they believe the apostles were, were deceived somehow they were deceived because they know that these were good men and they were sincere enough to die for the faith we know that they weren't legends um, and so maybe the apostles were deceived concerning the resurrection Uh we, to be honest with you, we don't even have to refute uh, the naturalistic explanations, proposed explanations of the resurrection accounts. We don't even have to refute them because the liberal critics refuted themselves in the uh, uh, 20th century. Uh, one guy proposed one theory, another guy refuted it, proposed his own theory. And uh, that was refuted. Another guy proposed the theory that was refuted. Swoon theory doesn't hold any water. Uh, Christ did not swoon on the cross; he died. We have evidence in John 19. The author of John's gospel said, "Look, you know, they pierced his side and immediately came out blood and water." And he repeated it, saying, "You know, hey, my testimony is true. I saw it with my own eyes." Well, he didn't. He, that's the first time he ever seen that. Well, now medical science hadn't proven it back then but medical science now knows when you have you know don't don't try it but if you stab yourself in that area of your body just blood comes out as far as I know and I'm not a medical scientist you stab yourself anywhere just blood's gonna come out but (laughs) but uh, but if you stab yourself in that part of the body and uh, what, what comes out looks like blood and then a transparent thing a little liquid looks like water don't call a doctor call the morgue you're dead Okay? and modern medical science has proven that they didn't know that 2,000 years ago when John wrote that so uh, and then if you know anything about crucifixion we don't have time to get into it um, but um, you can't faint on the cross you're either moving up and down on the block of wood under your feet and some guys can keep themselves alive for days Of course, Christ was scourged before he went to the cross, which weakened them greatly. Um, But that's why they didn't break Christ's leg. Because with the other guys, they broke their leg, so they couldn't push off. They would die within minutes. Okay. Um, But uh, whatever the case, even if if the apostles went to the wrong tomb, it doesn't explain the, the fact that they said over and over again they had seen him risen from the dead. The post-resurrection appearances, and if they went to the wrong tomb, the Jewish authorities, religious authorities, and the Roman authorities would have went would have went to the right tomb. They would have found the right tomb. They would have looked, searched every tomb uh, outside of Jerusalem until they produced the rotting corpse of Christ, and that did not happen. Therefore, uh, the apostles told the truth. Jesus uh, rose from the dead. Um, even the apostles changing this. Instead of gathering on Saturday in celebration of of God's creation work, they thought some some issue as big as creation occurred so they could then gather on Sunday instead. uh, It takes nothing short of the resurrection to take Orthodox Jews to stop gathering on Saturdays in celebration of Christ's creation to then gather on Sundays. By the Christ deity, Jesus claimed to be God the apostles called him God. The apostolic fathers called him God. Ancient secular writers admitted that the first century Christians worshiped Jesus as God. The ancient creeds teach that he was God. Therefore, the deity of Christ was not a legend. Okay? Rule that out. But we also know that Jesus was not merely a good man. Why? When's the last time you saw a merely a good man claim?